I got a little video to show you, so um, if Carol could just click on that. There's the first slide and then the second slide. You can always ask God questions. Why am I here? What is my purpose? Like why things happen? Why did God choose a poor family to see Jesus down into? How he came back from the dead? I would ask him, why is there bad in the world? Why does he forgive other people that do things that is not very kind to others? Can he change some of the people's minds and how they act? Why do people make fun of other people and like just give me friends? Why did you have to make these? How did he make Earth? Why? Did he flood the whole earth? I guess I'd want to ask him what heaven's like. If I could be with him for the rest of my life. I would ask God if God could help my brother. No question is too big, no question is too small. You know, we can learn a lot from children. Um, so much and you know, they used to have that show, you know, kids say the darndest things. Um, Steve, Har Steve Harvey has things like that. They always have these interviews with children about what do you think God's like? What do you think about this? And you get some crazy, uh, crazy answers, um, crazy comments. Uh, one of the ones that I always liked is the story of the pastor. He's talking about squirrels. He says, so uh, squirrels, we all know what squirrels are. They're these little animals, and um, they run up trees and everything. And he's telling these kids about squirrels. And he says, do you know what uh, the squirrels store away for the winter? And one little kid shoots up his hands and says, Jesus. <laughs> you know, because that's always the answer in Sunday school. It's always Jesus. And so kids have a... But kids have a... Uh, an insight into the world that's really, it's refreshing, especially when you have to deal with all the other stuff, um, the innocence there and everything. Um, and even though we shouldn't take our theology from children, if you've ever listened to um, kids describe who God is, probably shouldn't take your theology from them, but it gives you a, a better appreciation of what God has called us to. And so that's actually what we're going to be talking about today is this childlikeness. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter uh, 17. We're going to be finishing off 17, getting into 18. Um, and as we do, let's talk about the buildup that we've been seeing for the last several weeks because we're building up to Jesus' fourth sermon. And in his fourth sermon, um, there's some things that if we're not prepared that we're going to get to and then we're not going to like. Okay, Next week is one of those um, topics that most people don't like. And I'm going to share a story with you about that um, next week. But the build-up to this is really this idea of Jesus has been calling his disciples to a faith a faith that is exercised, that's transforming, that's seeking, and it's always reapplying His Word. And so this is the build-up. This is the kind of faith we as disciples are supposed to have. If we're not exercising our faith, that means if we're not putting His Word into practice, then when we get to chapter 18, we're going to be very upset. If we are not being transformed in our faith, we get to chapter 18, we're going to be very upset. If we are not seeking God on a regular basis, we're going to get to chapter 18 and be upset. And if we aren't reapplying God's Word, guess what? We're going to get to chapter 18 and we're going to be upset. Okay? 
So we have, this is the kind of faith that God has called us to, and so we need to be a part of that. And so now, with that mindset, with that understanding of what our faith needs to be, we get into chapter 17, and we're finishing it off, and we're going to read through this part where it's, an in, it's a, a little story before it, and then we're going to kind of go through and cover several um, spaces within chapter 18 and the following. All right, so... Chapter 17, starting verse 24, it says this. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not offend them, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into uh, eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will not will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about the one sheep than the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. And so you have this this whole situation. This is the beginning of the sermon in chapter 18. But it starts off with this, this situation where there's this question about this tax. And this tax that's going on is this once-a-year tax that every male who's old enough, 20 years and older, is supposed to be paying into. And so Jesus is questioned, not, not directly, indirectly questioned about paying this tax. And Jesus, when Peter comes in, Jesus asks the question, right? Do the kings of the world charge their sons or tax their sons? Now, in the, in the world, the answer is no, right? And we can see this in our own world. The people that are the friends of the ones doing the taxing tend to find ways to not do taxes, right? And we're all trying to do that, right? Let's not make it seem like they're the only ones. But we're all trying to get out of paying taxes, let's be honest, um, because no one wants to pay that. 
And so you have this, this situation, and Jesus is saying, okay, who doesn't get taxed? Now, this all has to be put into context of what Peter, this is dealing with Peter. Peter recognized Jesus back in Matthew 16. Remember what Peter said about Jesus? That he is the Messiah, the Son of God. What's the temple tax for? It's for God's house. Right? So Jesus asked the question, should I be taxed? That's the implication here. Should I be taxed? Right? If I am truly who you say you are, uh, who I say, uh, who you say I am, Peter, should I be taxed? And the answer is no, because he's the son, right? But Jesus says, so even though that's true, we're still going to pay the tax. And this is a, a faith lesson for Peter. Peter, go out, catch a fish, and you're going to find two of these coins to pay the tax. So right at the very beginning, you get this whole situation where we find out that Jesus is both the king, right? He's the, or the son of the king, right? And he's humble enough to be a servant, right? This double part, okay? He's the mighty God, so he doesn't have to pay the tax, but yet he puts himself into a position where he does pay the tax. And so he's the humble servant. This is really important because the next question is, who's the greatest? And already, when we, before we even get to that question, we already have the answer. What's the answer? Jesus. Jesus is the greatest. Right? So we already have it. But we get this, this situation where it's in question. Should Jesus pay something which really he shouldn't? The answer is, no, he shouldn't, but he still does. And it brings to mind, to my mind at least, um, Paul's words in Philippians. So in Philippians 2, 6-8, through 8, he says this. He's talking about Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. We see this in this passage. Just because Jesus is God, he's not using that as a way to say, I don't need to pay the tax. Right. Instead, rather, he made himself nothing to take the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And so what does he do? He's in human likeness. He still pays for the tax. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on the cross. And so Jesus, even though he's the mighty God, he makes himself the humble servant. This is so important because the rest of what happens after this, the sermon that comes after this, is, is this is a precursor to all of that. It's a precursor to everything else. So when we start going through the sermon, we always have to remember this one thing. Even though Jesus is the mighty God, He still takes the role of a servant. If we don't have that down, then we're going to get into the same mindset as the disciples. Alright? Because at the end of the thing, they're still in the same mindset. And if, but if we don't have the understanding that what we've built up so far, the faith, right? The exercise faith, the transformable faith, the seeking faith, the reapplying faith. If we don't have that, and we don't understand that Jesus, though being the mighty God, it still makes himself a servant... 
then the whole chapter 18 is going to be lost. Because the very next question that the disciples ask is, who is the greatest? And what does Jesus do? He grabs a kid. Grabs a kid, makes him stand in the middle of the the group, and says, if you're not like this, then you're not... This is the greatest right here. You've got to be like this kid. And so he starts going through, and he, he's telling them, you need to be like this child. So the answer to the question, who is the greatest, is someone who has childlike faith. Okay? And this is a status situation. This whole thing. It starts off with, what's the status of, uh, of Jesus? And the answer is, mighty God, humble servant. Right? That's the status. The next thing is, Jesus, what, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Well, the answer is, Jesus. Right? But for us, it's those who are childlike in their faith. Okay? Now, there's a difference between being a childlike faith and be childish in your faith. Okay? There's a big difference there. Childishness is not the same as childlike. Childishness is me, me, me. It's selfish. It's self-centered. It's what can I get out of this. That's childish. Childlike is being where you are. Um, I'm sorry if my mind's a little off. I've been working a lot this week. Um, It's where you are trusting. It's where you're dependent. It's where you're saying, okay, I'll do what you say. It's that one, it's being influenced, right? One of the things we talk about right now in our society is the fact that, you know, there's all this, the CRT, the, the, the LGBT stuff for children. Um, and there's a pushback. Why? Because children are in, influenced, easily influenced by a bunch of stuff. So that's why it's, let's just keep children learning what they need to learn, the, the three R's, right? Um, and so... This whole idea of being childlike is I'm here to be dependent on God. I'm here to trust God with absoluteness, right? Is you're just going to do it. In the foster care system, we noticed uh, when we did foster care that children, they always, no matter what their parents did to them, they were always, no, I, my parents are some of the greatest people in the world, you know, because they, they just loved them unconditionally. And so Jesus is saying, be like this child. Okay? But he doesn't just end there, right? If we can go to the next one. Um, he doesn't just end there. He talks about this whole idea about temptation. So he transitions from this, from this be like this child into temptations. And so he says this, He says, woe to the world. I mean, yeah, so he goes um, into this. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's pretty harsh language there, right? Man, and we're not talking about, you know, a millstone. This is one of those big old stones that they use to crush grain. And Jesus is saying, you know, it would be better if you were thrown in with that around your neck. You never have that dream where you drown? Like, my biggest fear is probably drowning. Uh, And I scuba dived for years. 
But it's just this idea. I would get under the water and there would be a moment where I would just think, my air could easily just be gone and I could just die here. You know, you're down 90 feet going around. It's like, yeah, this be, there's no way I'm getting to the top. And the course where you had to like, you know, they put you down, I think it was at 20 feet. And you had to, they turn off your air. You have to go to the surface. I took a, uh, they leave you just one more breath or something like that. And I get to the top and um, I took a breath before I got to the top. And they're like, ah, that was close enough. <laughs> so I know at 90 feet I'm dead. Um, but just the idea that this harsh language of being, if you cause one of these. And what's interesting is he's not talking about the child anymore. He's not talking about the child. He's, he says, he's talking about the little ones who believe in him. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about believers. He's saying if someone causes them to sin, it would be like, it would be better for that person to go. And so he goes into the woe. Woe to the world because of things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. You know, one of the greatest things that Jesus is saying here is if you cause someone else to sin, it's going to be bad for you. This is huge. He's saying, woe to you. A woe is a curse. Woe is saying, woe, you know, it's bad in the harshest sense. And he's saying that if we cause each other to sin, it's really bad. And so what does he go on to say? He says, so start cutting stuff out. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. This is the same language he uses back in the in his first sermon. Back in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the same language. And he's not saying, you know, go out and cut off your limbs. He's saying, cut out everything in your life that causes you to sin. That means people. That means places. It means you can't go to that certain place. You know, you can't do that certain activity. You can't watch that certain show. If it's causing you to sin, guess what? You need to cut it out. And if you're a person that's causing someone to sin, you're, no, you're the problem. The way we act, the way we dress, the things we say. And if we're causing someone else to sin, we're a problem. And we should be cut out of someone's life. And if someone cuts us out of their life, maybe we should take a moment and say, did I do something wrong? Maybe I should. Maybe I said something. Maybe I did something. Maybe, you know, a lot of times we always think of you are the problem, right? That person coming out of their life, what a jerk. Maybe we cause them to sin. And they're trying to cut the things out. This is a double, this is the whole thing because in the next week, it's going to focus on us and other people. Jesus is starting right now. If we cause people to sin, we're going to be in a bad place. Jesus says, woe to you. And if things are causing us to sin, we need to cut those out of our lives. Sin is not something that we should play around with. It needs to be dealt with. It needs to be looked at and said, this is not right. I need it out of my life. Because I don't want, I don't know about you, but I don't want to have a millstone around my neck being thrown into the water and drowning. 
And he says, it would be better if you'd had that. So what would be worse? Okay. So he, he uses this harsh language to help us realize this is something that's really important. In our lives, we, we can't be playing. I, I think I told you guys the, the story of a dream I had years ago. I mean, I, so long ago, I can't remember when it was. But the dream was this. I was, at, um, I was sweeping out a garage. I knew it was my garage. Sweeping out of the garage, it was one of those houses that are these um, just a uh, track house. Okay, it was a two-story house. The driveway, I can remember all of this. I mean, it's like clear as day. The driveway is one of those real steep ones, but real short. Two, the two stories, it was just a flat house. You know, it had, I think, uh, there was a, the way it was, grass was over here. You drove up here, you walked that way, you went that way. Um, there's a tree in there, and there's just, you know, street and everything and all these other track houses, okay? So that's the, where I'm at. And then I'm sweeping out the garage, and there's a snake. And I start playing with the snake. Like, I take the broom, and I start, like, hitting it and everything. And when I woke up, it clear as day, God's like, that's you, Jeremiah. You're playing with sin. Knock it off, or it's going to bite you. And so, playing with sin is a huge problem. And if we think, oh, I can just do this, and it'll be fine. No. It's going to cause problems. It might, you know, I see this all the time. And I get this all the time from teenagers. Why did God allow this to happen? And that gives us a perfect opportunity to talk about free will. But you know who the number one person who causes the problems in teenagers' lives? Parents. And I don't mean that as in the teenagers just like, oh man, dude, my parents are such jerks. They made me wash the dishes. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, no, um, my, my dad hits me. Why did God allow that? Or my my parents are on drugs. Uh, we know um, a, a family that um, the the parents didn't really care that the there was people coming over and and molesting the daughter. Like the you know, it's like this is the problem. And the parents they they had this idea that it was okay to be in sin. And it would affect no one else. Oh, no, it affects everyone around us. Our sin affects everyone. So if we're in sin, and then we have a problem with someone, guess what? It's not them that's the problem. It's me. Because I'm in sin. And if I'm in sin, I'm just going to call... It's going to be a natural reaction with sin happening around me. But if I start cutting out the things that make me sin or cause me temptation, because Jesus says, it's going to come. But there are temptations that we cause and temptations that happen. A temptation that we cause is, um, if I'm drinking a lot, I'm just using this as an example, if I'm drinking a lot, the temptation to get into my car 
is going to be there, right? But if I'm not drinking, is the temptation there to get in my car to drive drunk? No, it's not, because I'm not drinking. I'm not drunk. So I've cut out a temptation in my life. Now, the other kind of temptation is from someone else, right? You might be living your life, and you might be going through stuff, and you're just going on. And then I, I shared with you guys the other a couple weeks ago. I got a random text message from someone I don't know that was in a provocative thing, a provocative picture. That's a temptation I didn't ask for, but came into my life. You know, and so it's there are temptations that are going to happen to us, and there are temptations that we will cause to happen to us. What do we need to do? Cut out what we can. Does that mean we cut out everything? No, you can't cut out everything, right? Because right now I'm tempted to burn down the gas station. <laughs> because I uh, which one? Now, there was a. Um, I saw this picture of this guy outside the Federal Reserve and they show the building in the background and it shows him painting and it's on fire. You know, because he's like, I, it was a protest. And so, you know, there, we have these temptations on our lives that we just can't get away from. I mean, they're just going to be a part of it. Um, and my family, my family are, we have addictive personalities. And so, all of my uncles, all of, every single one of my uncles, except for one, died because of drugs. Because as soon as they got that temptation, they fell into it, they couldn't get out. And the one uncle that didn't die, he died from like the breaking down, it was drug related, it was a breaking down of the body. And so, what do I do? I stay away from things. In fact, the only I take aspirin is the, um, the only drug I take. I don't like taking things, but I, uh, Mark goes, "You're taking too many of those," because <laughs> I wait so long, and I'm like, "Okay, now I need a thousand milligrams," <laughs> you know. Um, and so it's like because I know that that is a temptation in my life, even if it's not a, right in my face. But if I take it. I know because of my family history that, that it could lead. It could easily lead down paths. And so we got to take sin seriously. And temptation is a serious issue. And if we don't deal with this, and we don't recognize this, next week we're, we're going to not like it. You, I hope you notice something. Next week we're not going to like it. If we're, not, if we're not taking seriously our faith and following God, next week, we're not going to like it. Okay? So then he goes, okay, we're still talking about having that childlike faith. Okay? That childlike status. That we're supposed to be one of these people who are trusting God, who are, who are re, uh, reliant only on Him, that we are... Cutting out things that are tempting us, that we are not being the bearers of temptation for other people. And then he gets into this small parable 
Luke has this parable too, and he has it instead of three, the lost sheep parable. And he's talking about the the ninety nine are left home and the one wanders off. And I showed this. Uh, I don't have the video. I should have got the video. There's this great video I showed to the teenagers a few weeks ago, um, where it's this little sheep and it's stuck in this like um, I think it's a drainage ditch. And this this boy comes up and he's pulling the sheep out and he finally gets the sheep out and the sheep just starts yeah boom right back into the drainage ditch. <laughs> Um, and it's really funny to watch. I, I should have had it for you, but I didn't. Um, but it's this lost sheep that is out there. And here comes the good shepherd. He comes and he gets in and talks about rejoicing over it. Putting this into the context of the whole thing, it's really easy to become an unchildlike faith Christian where we start making rules for people, uh, where we start saying, no, you have to do this and this and this. You know, we, and the, a childlike faith, someone that has this childlike faith, especially as a new believer, they come in and it's really easy to start, okay, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. And all of a sudden now it's becoming a childish faith um, or it's becoming a legalistic faith, right? Well, I, I thought I was saved by grace, right? It's like, no, 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 you're not saved by grace. You're, you're saved. Maybe you were saved into it, but now you've got to follow all these rules type of thing. And it's like, no, 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 you need to follow God. God decides what you need to do, right? But you need to start cutting out things too. That's what he says. So I need to start cutting things out. But in the, in the three parables that Jesus talks about, in the third one it's the parable of the two sons i know it's called the parable of the prodigal son i i think it's the the story of two sons and the dad is what it is and in that parable you get this the lost sheep right he's out there he's doing the thing that's a prodigal son but then you have the the one sheep that's still there that's the older son and the older son gets mad at his dad for welcoming the sheep back why? Because when you do all the right things, right? You do all the stuff. You say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm the good Christian. And then you see God saving someone that's not good or has been a jerk. You don't like. They've said some things. They've gossiped. They've been whatever. Well, why, God, do you need to save them? Because He still loves them still pursues them. And this puts into context everything that comes after it because where do we find ourselves with God? If we're pursuing God like we've been seeing, right? The, the exercise faith, the transformable faith, the seeking faith, the reapplying faith, we're in that childlike, we'll be that childlike faith. But if we're not, we'll be in the mindset of the disciples. The disciples are the type of people that are like, who, who's the greatest? Right? Who is the best? You know, it's the selfish faith. It's, I want to be the best. And what's interesting is, Jesus goes through all this, right? He gets the kid. He's like, here's a perfect example. Be like the kid. And then he goes through his sermon, and then in chapter 19, 
you get this. And I just, I love this. I think it's hilarious. Chapter 19, verse 13. It's at, this is after all this happens, all this sermon happens. Um, it says, The little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. So Jesus starts this whole thing out. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Bring a child over here. You've got to be like him. Be childlike in your faith. And then when children are brought to Jesus after he talks about all, a bunch of other stuff we'll get to, what do they do? They welcome the children. No. They, sent, they want them sent off. You know, I've, I shared the reason why this church started back in the 70s, late 70s and then into the 80s. It's because there was no place for young families that have children in church. And so it just started with a bunch of young families getting together with their children and eventually became this. And back in 2012, we had a group in the church that wanted to get rid of all the youth stuff. They want to get rid of the vans and the, and the youth pastor and the, all the, the stuff we do with the youth. So that, because you know what? That's a drain on our money. And it is. You know how much money you guys spend on these teenagers? Like seriously. On average, I want to give you guys, put this in perspective. Yeah, it's this guy's fault. Um, <laughs> on average... Um, the income of the church when I when I started here, um, the income of the church was about one hundred and ten thousand dollars. That's a lot of money. Okay, um, about including the youth pastor, including all the youth events, that was um, about fifty percent. Sometimes it was a little less in the 45. Sometimes it was a little more into the 55. But around 50% of all the income of the church went straight to the youth. That's where it should because that's where the ministry of the church is. Okay? Yeah. Right now, it's less than that because we don't have a youth pastor. But we still spend a lot of money on these guys. A lot of money. And you know what? They raise a lot of money. They... The church doesn't spend, oh, uh, let me phrase that. The church spends very minimal on their trips. They have to earn a lot of it. Okay? Now, if a a teen can't do that, we cover it. But take this week, the in-town trip. Okay? It starts on Sunday night. It ends on Saturday afternoon. The teens... All that money for them to stay here and do all the work projects, they've raised themselves. You know what the church spends money on? The VBC, the Vacation Bible Camp part of it. So the church buys all that, but the teens raise their money so that they can eat that week. And it's very minimal. I think we only spend about $600 for the food. Um, And so, but the point is to have the children be brought to Jesus. But here's the disciples. When we have the mindset that we're selfish, that we want to be the greatest, that we can allow sin into our lives, 
children are not looked at as something that is of worth. You know, it's interesting at this time when Jesus brings that child into their midst, that is usurping everything. For a child, one to one, when you're comparing a child to someone in their social bracket, the child always loses. The child is always less. And so for Jesus to say, be like this child, he's subverting all their expectations. Because really, he should have said, be like me. Right? The mighty, the mighty God. But instead he says, no, be like this child. Humble. Trusting. And then we get to the end, they still haven't got it. They're still in the mindset of who's the greatest. Because we see it in action. The children come, they reject them. This is why I think it's funny when we try to put these guys on pedestals. Well, it's Peter, it's Paul, it's, it's John. These guys are just like us. Fall into temptation really easy. Have these mindsets of not doing what God actually says. But I, I love his response, Jesus' response. He says, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, those who are childlike in their faith. When he had placed his hands on them, he went out from there. I love this. I love the fact that um, from here, um, we get this... Um, I don't know if you notice, I don't have my glasses. I have contacts now. And so I can't see anything. So I don't even know. Yeah, it's easy to fall into this trap, right? To fall into this trap of saying, okay, we need to reject these little kids. We need to reject those things. You know, and this is the thing is, cut out temptation. Children are temptation. A temptation to just get annoyed. Right? Because they're loud. They stink. Seriously. I, we, a couple weeks, uh, what was it, back in April, we had the guys and girls night out. And I had the guys there. And one of the things that drives me nuts is two things. One is uh, the stench of teenagers. And then they're covering it up with cologne or perfume. Ugh. So you get this horrible smell. Uh, yeah. And so what I did with the teenagers is I bought them all little packs of hygiene kits. And I said, you guys got to use these. You stink. It's horrible. So deodorant, um, mouthwash, toothpaste, uh, soap. Um, yeah, yeah. It, okay, this was supposed to be a 15-minute conversation. It went for like an hour. Because I had explained everything in the kit. Okay. I explained putting on deodorant. I explained how to wash your body, um, <laughs> brushing your teeth twice a day, you know, things like that. Um, and then we get to your feet stink. And we had this teenager one time that we had to put his shoes outside of the church <laughs> because it was so bad. And so what do we do? We, we gave every teen 
foot spray that they were supposed to shoot. Good. Yeah, I yeah. Know, I no longer have that anymore. Oh, I have more. Uh, <laughs> believe me. Uh, on on this week, we make every teen take a shower. Okay, and if they don't, we grab them. And we throw them in. Okay, so, but we get this, you know, there are things in our lives that, that was kind of a rabbit trail. There are things in our life that are, that will tempt us, right, to like a smelly teen and you want to smack him in the head, right? Um, But it's so easy to forget we were once a smelly teen. You know, yeah, not you, I'm sure. Um, yeah, don't even get me started on the teenage girls. And I, every year, I've been doing this for about 15 years. I've been driving for the majority of that. And every Friday, it's when the girls get in, because the guys stink, but the girls try to cover it up with perfume. So you get the mix. Um, but this idea that we have to remember where we come from. Right? And this is why I love Ephesians 2, 8-9. through 9. In Ephesians 2, Paul says this, and I think it's emphatic, for it is by grace you were saved, through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We were once a stinky teenager. We were saved by the cleansing of Jesus. We need to be childlike in our faith and not tempt others into sin. And we need to cut sin out of our lives where we can so that we can cut down the temptations in our lives. Now again, there's going to be temptations that have to be there. Right? It's just going to have to be. I deal with a lot of people that are tempting in different ways. There are things like, hey, I can do this job and we'll do it all under the table. It's like, no, we can't do that. A perfect example of this is when we added on to the fellowship hall, it could have been really easy to say, hey, let's find the cheapest we can find to build that. Bless you. But instead, no, we went with a contractor so we could do all the up and up. We did all the, um, all the permit fees and everything. Why? Because as the church, we need to be as right as power, right, transparent. We need to do what needs to be done, responsible. We need to do what's right as best we can. And so... We need to make sure that we can cut out these things. But we always need to remember where we come from. I love the, the example of this, that we are all just beggars looking for food. The only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is a Christian has found the food. It's the only difference. And we're supposed to be telling other people where to find the food. I think that's a really good image of what we are. We are sinners saved by grace. Now we're children of the King. 
but we know where we come from. And we need to stay in that position of perpetual thanksgiving. God, thank you. I once was a sinner and now I'm not. I was once dead to sin. I mean, I was, yeah, but now I'm alive in you. Dead because of sin. And so, so we got to be careful that we don't fall into this, this thing of, I need to be better than I am. Who is the greatest? Because you know who the greatest is, right? It's Jesus. He's the mighty king. And yet he becomes the humble servant. So what does that mean for me? I need to be the servant. I need to be the low status, the childlike status. And so my, my challenge for you this week is very simple. I want you to try to look through at God through the eyes of the ch- through a child. Okay? Um, there's a couple ways you can do this. Um, one way is you could talk to a child. Okay, if you have a child, you can talk to a grandkid or something like that. You can t- talk to them, ask them about um, God. I had my niece one time. She calls me up and she says, um, "Can you explain?" Or my sister actually calls me up. She goes, "Can you explain to my?" Um, I think she was nine years old at the time. Uh, about what heaven looks like. You know how I explained it. You ever been to an amusement park? <laughs> You know, and so we talked about that because childlike, child understanding, and I understand it that way, so that's the way we talked. And she goes, Oh, I get it now. I get what heaven's going to be like. Um, and so look through the eyes of a child. Another way you can do that, come to VBC. You don't have to participate, okay? Just watch. Watch the children and see how they interact. See the things they do. Listen to their answers. Some of their answers are crazy. But recapture that childlike faith. Not childish faith, but childlike faith. Okay? Because I think if we do this next week, we're going to actually enjoy it. <laughs> we'll say, oh, that, that actually is good stuff. But if not, we're going to fight. We're going to fight against God. We're going to say, God, no, that's not okay. I'm not going to do that. But if we do what Jesus says, have childlike faith, start cutting out the temptations in our life, rejoice when people come in that are new believers. Because we remember, I used to be the lost one. Now I'm the found one. And I can rejoice with God over the found ones. And it's going to be its so much easier. The Christian life is so much easier. Following God is so much easier. Because you know what? I'll tell you right now. As a kid, I didn't think about rent. I didn't think about where food came from. I didn't think about hygiene. (laughs) I didn't think about a lot of things that as an adult I think about. And there are stresses in my life that I never had as a kid. And I don't want my kids to have those stresses as kids. I want them to be prepared for them. But right now, I want them to enjoy being kids. I'd rather be the childlike so that God deals with everything. And I don't have to stress about things because He's in control. And if we can all do that, if we can all seek after God, exercising that faith, being transformed in our faith, if we are seeking Him, if we're applying His Word... 
We're in that childlike position. And when those stresses of gas prices, of dumb politicians, of wars, of all these different things come into our purview, then you say, God, you got it. I trust you. It'd be a lot easier. And you'll, we'll have the peace that God says we'll have. Why? Because we're actually doing what he says. And then the world can see that and go, what's wrong with you people? You should be stressed out. You should be hating things. You should be doing this. It's like, I don't need to. My God's in control and I trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that um, you've called us to be people who are childlike. Lord, help us not to fall into the childish faith where we are it's all about us, about wanting what's best for us, about what's what we should have. Lord, help us to be childlike um, and know our status as children of the King, of the mighty King, and help us be humble and servants of the people around us and you. So, Lord, we just thank you. It's in the name of Jesus we praise you. Amen.